This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good morning, Mr. Hamilton. We always say that, but is it really? Uh, it, it's pretty good. We had a great talk today with uh, Sydney Goward. Sydney is doing a ton of work for Wild Sheep. She's involved with the new Thinhorn Management Plan for the mm-hmm. province. Uh, she's on doing a cool study in the McKenzie's in uh, sorry the Richardson's Richards. in the yeah. um, in the Northwest Territories. So uh, on dull sheep. So um, I ran into Sydney Goward at the Thinhorn Summit up in Whitehorse a couple of weeks ago, and um, and. Interesting. She's going to U of Vic and member of the Wild Sheep Society BC. We started talking about her project. I'm like, oh, you got to come on the podcast. And um, I'm sure after you listen, you will not be disappointed. Very articulate, mm-hmm. very knowledgeable about wild sheep. Uh, she has a very, very good understanding of the new uh, Together for Wildlife co-management uh, management model for wildlife in BC and talks about that. Um, so very interesting, interesting perspective. Uh, a young lady just getting her career started and wise beyond her years, I would say. And that's, that's the nice way to put it. Like she's got a bachelor of natural resource science with honors. Uh, and she's a, a non-practicing RPF and she's still bloody young and she's, She's kicking butt in the conservation world. She's going to be something. She's going to be a mover and a shaker, and we're going to we're going to see her for years to come. And she's going to make a positive impact. Yeah, and she already is. I think it's pretty safe to say that she's already done some pretty impactful things. Um, she, she's uh, heavily involved in the Thinhorn Management Plan, and um, the, the new Thinhorn Management Plan that's going to be released ideally this fall. She talked about that. Is that it has a lot of the indigenous perspective. So it's, um, you know, it's, she's weaving government and first nations perspective into this new document. So it's going to be interesting. And I think um, I'm looking forward to see what this, the, the thin horn management plan looks like. And she's been very involved with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. She has. So some housekeeping stuff before we jump into episode 76. Um, we've got two very cool events coming up. Uh, the first one is on June 17th. Uh, registration is now open. Women Shaping Conservation. Um, and this is uh, going to be a great event. It's in Langley at Crossberry Farms. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we got Helen Swansha, retired uh, provincial veterinarian for Flynnroad. And we also have Renee Thornton, the uh, lead on Women Hunt from the Wild Sheep Foundation. She was just on the last episode, so or sorry, two episodes ago. Um, so great perspective um, having Renee there. So b- both uh, Helen and Renee will be there to speak. And then we're going to – we got a very cool film, the new transmission film from uh, the Wild Sheep Society BC is going to be on. So great night for the ladies. Registration's open on the website. There's still spots available. Um, and – we're going to have a bunch of raffles, door prizes, giveaways, as usual. It's going to be a great night for the ladies, June 17th in Langley. Yep. Transmission is going to be on there as well, the, our new film. And uh, it's not just the ladies, though, now. Uh, we It's it's geared towards ladies, but the, the men are invited as well. So, yeah, should be a good time. The, the pizza's yeah. got my attention, right? You, you, yeah. you had me with pizza and ice cream. Yeah, well, they have their, they have their actually own... Uh, series of uh, pizza that they make there with their own all their own local products and stuff. Very cool. And then of course they're they're a winery as well. So they have uh, with your registration you get a couple glasses of wine. So yeah, it's going to be a great night. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to it. So and then the next night, June eighteenth, we're going to be up in Kamloops for our first ever Mountain Mem- Mentorship Night. Um, we're all going to get together. We're going to talk wild sheep. We're going to talk horn aging. We're going to talk gear. Um, Joe Apple's going to be in the house uh, from, you may recognize Joe from Wild TV. Joe's going to be there. He's going to be talking, do a gear talk and, and share some of his, uh, what he's learned in the field, um, some tips and tricks. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a, a great evening there. Uh, Transmission, our new film will be shown there as well. Um, so that's, that's at the Coast Kamloops Hotel. Registration's now open for that. That's June 18th in Kamloops. Love to see you there. Um, it's going to be a great night. Uh, again, tons of new raffles. Um and new giveaways uh we're gonna have that brand new stone glacier pack um what's the name of it do you recall that new stone glacier pack is it terminus sounds Um, something like that yeah terminus four pound pack it's like a it's it's a full expedition pack and it's like under four pounds it's unbelievable it's going to be um 
I think a lot of the pack manufacturers are going to be playing get catch up on that one. Um, people love it. So we've got a couple of those get to try on those packs, uh, but just a great night for wild sheep um, dinners included. We're going to have some beers and just a good time and tell some, some sheep stories like we always do. So yeah. Terminus 7,000, three pounds, 15 ounces. That's, Ridiculous. It's, that's that's it's crazy. Insane. That's we, absolutely crazy. We, we got a couple of those and, uh, uh, from through our uh, agreement with Precision Optics, our conservation partner, and, and uh, Stone Glacier, and they're phenomenal. We I tried it on in, in Prince George, and it's it's like there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Four less than four pounds. It's unbelievable. So, That's um, awesome. how do people get their tickets? Over to the website wildsheepsociety.com. Big icon right in the middle of the page. Thanks, Steve, for the setup. I owe you a beer and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and come see us. It'd be great. Uh, again, you can't just show up. You got to register, pre-register. Yeah. Uh, but again, tons of giveaways, and it's going to be a great night for wild sheep. So, looking forward to seeing you all there. Registration's already strong. We got a, a really good uh, contingent, but we have lots of space at this one, um, and it's going to be a fun evening. So, I agree. I wish I could make it, but uh, well, it's a long drive for for me. But who knows? I might show up anyway. Right? Just <laughs> yeah. crash the party. Well, buddy, if we're advertising that you're going to be there, it's going to sell out for sure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. Uh, awesome. Okay, so with that, um, episode 76, and uh, we welcome Sydney Goward to the show. Um, enjoy. Uh, it's a great listen. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Well, good morning, Sydney. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's a beautiful sunny day in Victoria. Are are you down in the... South Island right now or where where are you hanging out? Yeah, calling in from Victoria, just right near the University of, uh, of Victoria. Cool. So you're there doing your master's, I understand. And um, can you talk a little bit about exactly what you are studying through your master's pro- uh, master study right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I started this project back in May of 2021 and it was a posted project. So There's a lot of background to it, but basically I'm doing a master's of science in the School of Environmental Studies at UVic, and I work with Dr. Jason Fisher. He's a camera trapping expert, and then my co-supervisor is Dr. Trevor Lance, who kind of brings in the more Arctic perspective. So my project is a community-based monitoring program for uh, doll sheep in the Northern Richardson Mountains of the Northwest Territories. So a little ways from home uh, for for the work that we're doing, but yeah, it's a really cool collaboration with uh, the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board. So, okay, th- this is fascinating to me. So you're in Victoria, um, you're, you're from British Columbia, uh, and all of a sudden now you're studying not only in the territories, uh, doll sheep of all things. So, um, and, and when I hear there's a doll sheep study coming out of UVic, it blows my mind, which it's fascinating and fantastic. But how, how does, talk, talk about that evolution. How did you get to where you are on this project? Yeah, so that really comes right back to community. Um, This project was a community-driven initiative. So up in the uh, Northwest Territories, you have the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board, who is kind of the instrument for managing fish, wildlife, and forests in the Gwich'in Settlement area. And they were established as this co-management board with the uh, the government um, back when the Gwich'in Comprehensive Land Claim Agreement was signed in 1992. So That's where the project actually kind of all comes from. Fast forward to 2014, um, there's been government surveys and community observations of doll sheep in that area that have shown the population that has been trending towards a decline. And the community had a lot of concern with this. So, you know, they decided we need to do something about this and we want to establish a community-based monitoring program. So the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board comes up with this camera trapping study that they'd like to do. And they started reaching out to camera trapping experts in academics because they kind of realized to get the analysis done that they needed, they wanted to bring on a master's student to do it. So that's where they actually reached out directly to my supervisor, uh, Jason Fisher. And then he brought on Trevor Lance. Um, Trevor's got a lot of great working relationships up in the Gwich'in settlement area. 
He does all kinds of other fish and landscape vegetation research with climate change. So he was the perfect um, partner to pair into this as well. And then the between the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board and then my two supervisors created this project posting, which ended up being my absolute dream. And I applied on it and got it and now have been kind of, yeah, carrying out the work um, with basically 100% direction from community and the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board. So was this, uh, was Wild Sheep a passion for you? Is that something that, you know, you talked about this was your dream job. So wh- where did that love for, obviously you grew up in Williams Lake, there's, I guess there's Wild Sheep in the in the region. So um, wh- where does this passion for, for Wild Sheep, and, and I guess, and then the Dull Sheep is, you know, <laughs> another interesting angle. So where does that all come from for you, Sydney? Yeah, so I grew up spending a ton of time out on the land with my family um, in the interior. And as you guys know, we're so blessed in Williams Lake with within an hour east of town, you can be out into that interior wet belt. And with an hour west, you're out at Sheep Junction and, and getting to be into Bighorn country. And it's, I think it was a direct result of those experiences that I have this really strong connection to land and, and to natural resources. And that's what kind of inspired me to pursue an education that would allow me to work in this capacity with wildlife. So in 2018, I did my degree in natural resource science at uh, Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. I had started working some forestry jobs over over my summers. Um, I actually (laughs) worked at a sawmill in high school. So that's kind of how I first got exposed into into my forestry career, I guess. Um, from many generations of loggers in the in the interior there, but I I was working some in the in the woodlands department as a summer student, and after my first summer doing silviculture and planning, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is not for me. I am not interested in in being a forester. And I told the company that, and they said, well, hey, we got a wildlife job over in Hinton, Alberta. If you're interested in pursuing that um, for next summer, so I thought, well, it's still with forestry, which I'm not super keen on, but the wildlife piece is really pulling close to my heart. And I did that job working for Laura Trout, um, a fantastic biology mentor, and was working for West Fraser Mills still in Hinton, Alberta, but managing a whole bunch of their biology programs and uh, surveying programs for mountain goats, doing harlequin duck work, amphibians, just the whole the whole works there. And, um, and that's where I really realized that if you want to have a big impact on wildlife in this province, you best be understanding how forestry works. And it all just kind of really came together and clicked for me. And I thought you could make a huge difference here for wildlife in your province. Um, And then, yeah, went back, finished up my degree, did a wildlife honors thesis um, with Carl Larson and then decided grad school is definitely not for me. I'm never going to grad school. I want to work. So ended up working for three years. Um, in various kind of forestry related jobs, various wildlife uh, responsibilities in those jobs, managing kind of our species at risk program and our environmental um, monitoring programs for West Fraser, also working as a planning forester. And again, just felt that that wasn't feeling right in my heart and that I was ready for the next step in actually pursuing wildlife and actually committing to it. And that's when I decided to apply on this posting. And so I guess, yeah, I also grew up doing quite a bit of hunting with my mom. Um, if you, you commented uh, earlier on my nice mule deer mount behind me here, um, that was one of my first deer, actually. And yeah, I think I've always really understand the importance of hunting in conservation and, and hunting for my spiritual and physical wellness as well. So I've always been really interested in being more involved in that community and um Wild sheep was more of just like a pipe dream, I guess. So you kind of, I was exposed to them out at Sheep Junction and and seeing the bighorns out there, but it seemed like such a far-fetched dream when no one in my family was a hardcore sheep hunter or anything. And I thought, well, that would just be so wonderful, but it's so far beyond my reach to kind of really dive into that. And um, so it's always been something I've been really interested in, just not pursued opportunities or even realized it was possible. So yeah, to now actually be exposed and to be up chatting with uh, sheep hunters and, and collaborating with conservation organizations and actually be in the sheep world is just almost surreal. That's fantastic. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that you touched on that. I want to go down the rabbit hole and all of them, but let's start with um, your project in the Richardson. So let's, um, you know, talk a little bit more about what's happening there, like the community engagement, but also uh, the camera work, what's being involved. Um, have you, I know it's early days with your studies, but are there any preliminary results? Um, and I think uh, you talked about the glitch in renewable resources um, or the glitch in people. They were really concerned about 
different um, doll sheep numbers. So have you had any preliminary findings or anything like that? So let's talk a little bit about specifically that project first, if you don't mind, Sydney. Yeah, absolutely. So since the 1980s, there have been various uh, kind of infrequent that every three to five year aerial survey um, programs in the Northern Richardson Mountains as a whole. So there's 12 survey blocks in that area. And for people who don't know, um, this is a mountain range that spans the Yukon and Northwest Territories borders. So there's a collaborative effort between governments to get a good handle on the surveying there. But since the 1980s, um, the surveys are a minimum count and they've kind of shown almost what I would describe as a drastic fluctuation in population numbers. So sitting kind of in the mid six, seven, eight hundreds when they first started um, peaking in kind of the 90s at over 1500, uh, like a total minimum count. And then in since then, all the way down to 2014, we've seen a, a consistent decline. And in 2014, the number actually reached below 500, which is a stated management threshold in the Northwest Territories where they ask um, indigenous people to, to voluntarily stop hunting. Um, that's kind of their threshold of like, this is not a good situation. So it was actually in 2014 when the community kind of was like, we really need to get a handle on this. And um, what they decided to do is to take one of those survey blocks that was the closest to some of the indigenous communities, um, Aklavik and Fort McPherson are the two communities that are closest to it. And because it's a really popular area for hunting and for fish camps on Husky Channel, just to the east of the range, they decided that this would be the great a great opportunity to trial this new project of using camera traps for monitoring wild sheep. And clearly the aerial surveys aren't giving us a whole lot of information on what's going on, so maybe camera traps can. And that's when uh, the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board was in consultation with communities and local knowledge holders to say, okay, where should we put these cameras? What are our objectives here? And uh, yeah, in 2018, they deployed, um, we have 20 sites. There's only 15 cameras that are active at any one time, but over a whole, you know, 400 square kilometer area, it's it's not a lot of cameras. But um, one of the challenges is that we have to work within community capacity for making sure that communities have a manageable amount of data for them. So what we're doing with the study is kind of two really unique objectives. So we want to see if camera traps can be used to capture similar wild sheep uh, demography parameters that are really important to understand what your population is doing. So those are the lamb to nursery ratio, the ram to nursery ratio, and then we're also looking if we can get classification of the rams. So what we're doing right now is actually pairing an aerial survey in our study area to the camera data to see if those are if it's comparable. And if they are, that would be really awesome because you can get so much more really interesting information with camera traps that could tell you a lot more about what's going on with the whole mammal community. They allow us to monitor for disease. There's just all sorts of great stuff. So we're kind of piloting this, this study to see, are, can camera traps even give, give us good information? If so, what can they give us? And uh, yeah, it's great. It's allowed the community to be really involved. And um, in terms of preliminary results, I don't have a lot for you. We've tagged I have over or quite just under half a million photos to go through and I've done about 85,000 so I'm still really early on in exploring the data <laughs> wow that's yeah. phenomenal looking at your website you've got everything on these cameras from like caribou to muskox to grizzly to wolves to a really cool picture of a lynx just sitting there so you're you're certainly getting a ton of pictures that are pretty awesome Oh yeah, sure makes this, uh, it takes the sting out of sitting in an office all day. I'll, I'll tell you that. Cause I mean, obviously when you go into grad school and especially working with such a cool animal, like, like doll sheep, you, you want to be out there doing your field work. And, and unfortunately there's not a lot of that included in this project because it is all remote data collection. But um, yeah, like you said, Steve, going through those photos and, and getting to see those animals interacting is just, just wicked. I know when I pick up one of my cameras, I've got a hundred photos on it. I'm going, oh, and it, that's that's a lot for me to go through. I'm like, oh, no, there's an antler. Oh, that's an ear. I can't imagine half a million. That's insane. So um, with regards to the camera traps, let's just talk about that for a second. I'm just curious. Is it watering holes? Is it like, how does that work? Like where where is a typical, what, what's the trap? Like what, you know, where's this common location that you're getting most of these wildlife? So most of our cameras are on well-known uh, doll sheep trails. So kind of in the in the Richardsons, there's there's these 
kind of peak ridges and, and certain particular crossings that the sheep are all known to use really well. And that's all from local knowledge holders, people that hunt fish and trap these areas. So they were really involved in going, this is a great sheep trail. I watch sheep on this ridge all the time from my cabin down at fish camp. Like this would be a great spot for a camera. So we, so they're not systematically deployed in terms of like a random distribution or set up in grids and then a certain number per grid, like most camera studies are. Um, they're put out in areas with a specific purpose to catch the highest number of detections of sheep. And that was strictly for the, that whole demography goal. We wanted to get, hopefully every sheep that's in the Richardson's, we want it to walk by one of our cameras so that we can, you know, hopefully I learned how to do a fancy statistics required to actually do that analysis with such kind of, um, yeah, not really clear cut data. Like we have some really difficult challenges to work around by doing that opportunistic setup, but, um, yeah, so that's how they're set up. Um, obviously, we're in permafrost there. We are Our study area is 200 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. So we're about 40 kilometers southwest of a clavic as the crow flies. And so all of our posts are, we have these like steel posts that are like, oh gosh, like five feet and then hammer them in with a sledgehammer into the permafrost down a couple feet deep and then mount the camera in a lockbox bracket to, to that pole. Um, so yeah, it's it's really interesting. The, the sheep, the wildlife all really get a sense that there's something unique on the landscape. We have pretty much every animal walking by will also come up and take a sniff. So get a lot of sheep selfies. You can see those on my website as you yeah. mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It certainly doesn't look like a place I would traditionally put up a trail camera. Like it's literally, they're right on a ridge. And yeah, I saw the, the wolf staring at the camera and a sheep staring at the camera. And you've also got like a, a depth gauge there that kind of, is that for showing animal size or depth of snow or both? That, um, that survey poll was set up just at one camera site for a different project that was studying um, doll sheep and snow characteristics. Um, so that was a snow measurement and it's been really interesting. So uh, yeah, what Steve's referring to is there's uh, one of the cameras that, I don't know, 15 feet away from it, there's like a marker pole, a meter stick that's also in that kind of shows these lines on it. Um, it's really interesting because we get a lot of, in that photo that you're referring to, there was a sow with two cubs that were checking out that pole. So it gave us a really beautiful shot of, of, of the, uh, of the bears. So that's come to our advantage for sure, but that's not part of my study. Very cool. So let's just talk a little bit about, um, well, I guess what, what are the intended outcomes of the study? What are you hoping to establish? Like they, you're obviously working with Glitchin to get this data. What's the, what's the intended outcome to, to understand population dynamics or numbers or, or what's, what's the final goal? The final, there's kind of two main themes. So the first one is really um, the goal would be, can we get the same demography parameters or reliable demography parameters from camera traps that we get from aerial surveys. And that would be really cool because we could start applying that to different sheep herds across North America in theory, right? So the first goal is, is this a new surveying tool to get these really critical uh, trends in population numbers? And then the second goal is more about the community interactions. Um, so the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board kind of has this community interest list that they maintain. And I've been pulling my objectives for these other questions I'm going to ask from that list. So it was essentially derived from community. And then I chat with different uh, community organizations to make sure I'm on par with information that they find interesting and useful for the for the sheep. And um, so the second question I'm looking at is kind of more baseline ecological data on what are the interactions between um, predators and competitors and the sheep up there. So I'm potentially going to be doing some what we call time to event analysis, where we look at when was the last detection of a sheep compared to the first detection of a grizzly bear during the lambing season. Understanding how the mammal community is overlapping their, their temporal use of the habitat, so how they're separating over time, um, and kind of understanding some more baseline community data like that in the Richardsons, which is why I'm so grateful for all of our wolf, grizzly, coyote, lynx, muskox, caribou, like all that, like it's been really interesting. It's incredible. It shows the diversity of the area. It's just, there's so much wildlife in the mm -hmm. landscape. Uh, so it's interesting, like we were at the Thinhorn Summit. I know you attended it as well, Sydney. Um, and Dr. Nima Jutha, who's the veterinarian for, uh, the territorial veterinarian for the NWT, um, she was there and she talked about, you know, there's no evidence of disease in 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 the territories that they're aware of, um, or at least major die-offs or anything like that. So is there any speculation on uh, on these numbers on the decline? You talked about a peak of eight hundred and went down to five hundred. 
And we also know just for our listeners uh, and from that conference is that uh, Dr. Jutha was saying that um, there's no non, there's no resident harvest other than First Nations. Um, so uh, it's not like you know, they have a pretty good idea of harvest numbers and stuff like that too. Anything that um, certainly non-residents all very regulated. So uh, any thoughts on declines? Is it climate change? Is, is the kind of, and I know that it's, I'm asking for speculation here, but any thoughts on on what's going on there? Yeah, I would say that pretty much the main culprit that we've been able to drive this down to is in, in theory and through the literature and talking to people is the weather events there. And and uh, yeah, in terms of climate trends in that area, that's one really cool thing about working with Trevor Lance in my lab is all of my colleagues in that lab are working on climate related projects and vegetation changes in that basically in areas that overlap our study area here. So I think that's the only thing that we can really point to because as you're right, like we don't, we haven't seen any major die-offs in doll sheep in, in this area for sure that could be disease related. Where it's interesting because our lamb to nursery ratio is actually quite healthy over time. We're actually not seeing like huge drops and no lamb, um, no recruitment. We're, we're not seeing that. Our, our ratio tends to be steady kind of in the 30 to 100 ballpark. And, you know, it's not usually a management concern until it drops below 25, as far as I understand it in, in that area. So, yeah, I've we've been seeing some really interesting snow patterns on the cameras. It's, it's hard because our study isn't systematically exploring snow characteristics, but that has been something that other folks have done in the area. And um, we, we know that that can be really hard on on them as well. But yeah, I, I would say that that would be where my speculation comes down to. The other thing is that our survey numbers aren't super reliable per se. That's why we're kind of looking more for the the ratios and the trends because, you know, we're only doing a minimum count here. And our surveys since the 80s have been so influenced by weather and getting good visibility windows. And so it's been really tough. Um, there has not been extensive collaring work done, not, you know, any mark recapture style, style studies that could give a better estimate in the areas. So yeah, it's definitely not hunter harvest. Um, we're not even totally sure on the predation thing. We know that they do have a few known predators, grizzly wolves, uh, eagles, lynx. Um, communities really interested in how coyotes are potentially playing a role now that we're starting to see more occurrences of them in the Richardsons. Um, there's been some speculation from community that as muskox make their way back into this area where perhaps their uh, uh, native range wasn't historically, that muskox might be kind of pushing sheep around a little bit. So and there's a lot of people working on muskox stuff on the North Slope right now. So hopefully more information coming your way soon on that. But yeah, I would say that the main culprit is very suspiciously climate change and weather related events. This area also sees no roads, no development, no access. Um, all of our stuff is either snowmobiling in from a clavic to actually service our cameras or doing it by heli. So in terms of industrial development, that's it's kind of not a thing in our in our study area, at least. Cool. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about um, the actual um, science side of things, and then you know you talked about there's two parts to your study. So there's the science aspect, but then there's um, traditional knowledge uh, engagement with the, uh, the the Glitchin people. Um, and I found it interesting. You know, in BC, we talk about co-management. I always thought we're pretty uh, advanced here in British Columbia when it comes to reconciliation and working together with First Nations and co-management together for wildlife strategy. But then I hear in 1992, the Glitchin Renewable Resource Board was established and it was a co-management strategy. That's 20 years. Is that, that's 30 years ago. So I, I'm like, we're ancient when it compared to that. So let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess let's start with what is traditional knowledge and, you know, you're working with um, local communities. And so give us a, a perspective of what that means when it comes to uh, co-management and, and, you know, and the resource and wild sheep, I guess. That is such a huge question. Um, <laughs> but yeah, happy to try and take a stab at it. This Again, it's not necessarily my area of expertise. I still consider myself a student and probably always will for this type of stuff. Um, but, but to us, and from this perspective of our project, traditional knowledge has really meant giving some credit and, and weight to the people that have resided on these lands for thousands of years. And that, you know, these are... They have such a the the Gwich'in people and the Inuvialuit in this area actually have have such a deep tie with the land and with doll sheep and it's and it's a species of extreme uh, cultural importance to them. So 
what's really, I think that there's a lot of knowledge that can be integrated into science there. But I think the the main part is just making sure that community is involved in consenting to and, and wants the wants this research to happen. So what we're, our project's also really unique. So I'm, I'm involving community in terms of being really engaged in community to make sure that my research priorities are aligning with the vision that they see for doll sheep on the mountain. And what's really cool is that the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board, when they applied for funding for my project, they also actually applied for funding for a, a doll sheep traditional knowledge study as well. So it's actually their, the Gwich'in uh, Department of the Gwich'in Tribal Council, Department of Culture and Heritage, I believe is their latest name. And they're actually doing, uh, running concurrent to my study, they're actually doing a, a knowledge study on doll sheep in community as well, where they're doing interviews, reviewing their archives, and pulling together what is the extent and the breadth of um, traditional knowledge on DD in this area. And it's actually the, the Gwich'in who are going to kind of braid the science that we pull with this thesis project and the traditional knowledge and, and weave that into their collective stewardship framework. So yeah, they're currently working on a management plan that's been in development since um, I believe the last draft, draft was like 2011, it's very old, but they're working on having kind of this science knowledge and braiding it with their traditional knowledge into their management framework. So, and we're benefiting from that even just in our project, right? Like our cameras are all set up where local knowledge holders said like, this is a good sheep trail and it has been for many generations here and you'll get, be able to count a lot of sheep here. So we're very grateful for the participation of the community so far. And it's been just absolutely wonderful to work in such a collaborative partnership. Um, I also thought, oh, BC's really got it together. And then when I started working in the Northwest Territories, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the Cadillac model. <laughs> At least it feels like it. Uh, so interesting there's a couple things you brought up and and i guess the first one um is sorry technical issue there um so the first question i have for you is you talked about an alignment between what you're seeing on the mountain versus what um you know what you know traditional knowledge is telling you so um i guess it's early days because you're still analyzing the data but um i know you've done a ton of community engagement you've held um uh, community um uh, get-togethers where you uh, dialogue about what you're seeing and what what locals are seeing. So, have you? Is it much too early right now? But are you seeing alignment with what traditional knowledge has been shared with you and and what you're seeing on the mountain, or, or how does that look for you so far? Yeah, I would say so. And and honestly, our goal in in doing this science is not necessarily like to compare the two because they are distinct and unique and different. And what traditional knowledge provides us is not necessarily what. A scientific evaluation is going to tell us we have different knowledge we have different tools in in the scientific framework for driving different kinds of knowledge and the the key thing is to recognize the difference and respect the two but but in terms of kind of a, a general example like when we come forward and say hey we want to understand better how the mammal community works and it's the community that brings up this concern of hey well muskox weren't normally really in this area and now we're seeing higher numbers we think that they might be pushing the sheep around we see it happen with caribou when we're out on our hunts um, can you look into that and that feedback really drives my research questioning to go okay maybe i'll include muskox in my time to event analysis to actually see what's going on there so in terms of what i'm seeing like my anecdotal experience looking through the cameras and from the time that I've spent out on the land is totally feels in line with what I'm the sense I'm getting from community. And um, yeah, that's been really interesting to engage in for sure. So let's talk a little bit about this community engagement. What, what does that involve with you? I know you talked about meeting with, uh, you know, the local people, but uh, what, what, you know, are they forums or you go out and talk to, you know, local hunters or people that are recreating on the landscape or, or how does that work? So a lot of the engagement on the development of this project happened before I came into the picture. And that included like research interest workshops where you they invite community and they're, they have local um, organizations called Renewable Resource Councils, which there's one in each of the four communities of the Gwich'in Settlement area. And those Renewable Resource Councils are made up of like board members from community and their priority is being the eyes and the ears on the land and for the people. And then the RCs is what brings information to the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board. So it's this very, like, I don't want to say clean because these relationships can always be messy, but it is the seemingly very clean and organized way of making sure that community interests are worked into the framework of how research even comes about. So in terms of what I've been doing, um, mostly it's been reaching out to people individually. So 
through building relationships, learning kind of who are some of the hunters and trappers who are most active in this community, connecting with them, watching their YouTube channel, even um, a few of the trappers or one of the trappers has a really great YouTube channel. Um, so I just stay up to date with what he's up to. Um, I go up to the Gwich'in settlement area a uh, couple times a year is kind of what's in the schedule and go and these renewable resource councils meet once a month. So I'll go and give kind of a half hour update on what I've got going on with the project here, community members out, they can ask me questions, they can provide feedback. Um, I also present at twice a year for the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board and their council. Um, so get lots of really good feedback at that point. And then we are planning for September to be hosting an actual open house in the Klavik, which is one of the communities um, that has the most interest in the project. And so that will look like hosting a dinner and having posters, pamphlets, just kind of open circle and sharing space to, to just chat and actually get more community grouped into one place at the same time. Um, a lot of these a lot of the, especially in the North, I find that a lot of Indigenous communities are really struggling with research fatigue and getting so many um, requests for consultation and for referrals. And so I really don't want to be causing that extra stress of constantly hounding people saying, hey, I know you've got 40,000 other projects across your desk, but can I have a minute to talk about, about sheep? So I'm trying to be as organized and respectful as possible in that process, but it's a, it's a combination of actually just chatting with people one-on-one uh, -on -one when I can, um, just to spread awareness of the project and, and hear them out, and then actually having more formal meetings and, and presenting to, to the boards and to the community organizations. Cool. So now with regards to, and this is the total segue, but with your camera data, how do you uh, collect that? Is it satellite or do you have to actually go and collect a, you know, a, a card and out of the camera? How does that work in terms of data collection and data points? Yeah, so we have it set up so that once a year at the end of February or March, when there's still snow on the ground, um, but that the weather has gotten a little bit more agreeable for snowmobiling, um, the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board and then community members will actually go out on sleds from a Klavik and go service each of the cameras. So that's about a three-day process to hit all 15 cameras. And that's the best way to access them. And it also allows community to be involved. They can actually go out and, and help out with that. With that. We also try to pick um, cards up in the summertime if we can when we're doing that August survey. So that's that paired annual aerial survey that I was talking about. Go out to do that every year in August. And then if you can land and you do have time and the weather's good to stop and grab a couple cards at that point as well. So yeah, no remote uh, data transferring. It's all once a year is kind of the, the pattern there with picking them up. So now for you, a big part of what you're doing is is going through all those photos, processing the data right now. And, and you're uh, how, where are you in that? Because you said you had like half a million photos or something. Yeah, it's a lot of photos. So right now where I'm at is I tag for anywhere is kind of ballpark of five hours a day. And I'm doing about a thousand to two thousand photos an hour right now. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'm like I said, I have finished about eighty five thousand as of yesterday and yeah, just going through and processing all the data and uh, saving lots of cool photos, put them on my website, and that's where the tagging's at. <laughs> wow, phenomenal. That's that's so much work, my goodness. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, cool. So let's um, let's segue a little bit now to BC. So, you know, you've seen a successful co-management strategy through uh, the glitch and, and what they're doing, um, and they've done it for literally decades now. Um it's interesting in the territories, you talked about four communities. Uh, BC is not four communities, we know. We know it's uh, very diverse. We have um, a ton of diversity in, on the landscape. Um, we have uh, a bigger population base. So let's let's translate this to what BC looks like. What, what's your sort of, uh, you know, we have this new Together for Wildlife strategy, which is a co-management strategy. What does that look like to you? Do you think, oh my goodness, this is our, we're in trouble trying to figure this all out, or do you, is there hope for the future? Um, what are your thoughts on on what that looks like? And I know it's a very high level uh, sort of uh, you know nebulous scenario, but what does that look like to you moving forward, having seen the the Northwest Territories model? I think in BC we are in a really unique situation, and we're not in a settled land claim agreement situation at all either. So not only do we have a lot of different nations and a lot of different communities with a lot of different interests, we also aren't in. I'm doing air quotes right now for the audience. Settled territory. So it's 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 going to be rich with challenges, but I think that also comes with being rich with opportunities. And as you mentioned, together for wildlife, like there's a lot of really awesome progress being made in there. We're not. I wouldn't even say we're necessarily close to achieving like 
real success in, in a lot of different areas of wildlife management in BC. We're in a really uphill slog right now, but I think we are climbing and, and that feels really good. So one the one example I can speak to direct directly is the provincial development of the of the thin horn stewardship framework. So our provincial goat and bu- goat and sheep biologist, I think is his title. Hopefully he <laughs> is not listening, Bill Jex. Um, he is kind of spearheading that project as well. And and in developing the the province's stewardship framework, they're also including an Indigenous Perspectives working group kind of in that Together for Wildlife strategy under that direction. And I've been very fortunate to be involved in in that drafting on the Indigenous perspective side. And the work that we're doing feels really good. I feel like it's going to have actual on-the-ground impacts in BC, not just for wild sheep, but for reconciliation. And um, I feel extremely optimistic about the direction that things are going and that legislation is kind of finally catching up and creating more opportunity for co-management in BC. But yeah, we're we're not quite there yet in terms of uh, all of the problems being figured out. Yeah, a bit of work to do for sure. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, it, it is surprising to me that they've been so successful in the territories and so uh, progressive. And, and here we are lagging three decades behind. But uh, so can we talk a little bit about um, uh, the Thin Horn Management Plan and your work around that? I know, obviously, it's not been released yet. So, you know, there's only so much you can talk about. But uh, anything you can talk on about that? We're really excited about this plan. And we're, we can't wait to get our hands on it and see, you know, um, the strategy that the government has moving forward on this is something that we've been advocating for for a long time. So you able to touch it all on that uh, for us, Sydney? Yeah, totally. So um, yeah, the, the plan was, it's kind of been picking up a lot of momentum since 2019. That's when the drafting of the plan restarted in the government. And it was at that time that uh, Bill Jex reached out to all nations whose traditional territory overlap with Thinhorn Range in BC and kind of invited, put out an open call and invited people to come from the nations to this Indigenous Perspective Working Group. The goal has been of the Indigenous Perspectives Working Group has been to take kind of the biology content and the historical management framework that the government planning normally would have stopped at and then allowing that to pass through review through nations that are interested and want to participate as well as creating specific content related to Indigenous perspectives to braid throughout the document and to really highlight and bring to the forefront and the hope is that by doing this, it'll we'll be able to make sure we're not missing anything in terms of what we want the plan to enable in the future for management actions. So, for example, we're making sure that the objectives from the government and the nations are really aligned and very clear in that document. We're also making sure that the wording is respectful, that we're starting to be able to incorporate a little bit more um, traditional language, indigenous language where we can, um, and creating opportunities for the future, such as community-based monitoring programs and that. We want to make sure that the plan is um, really mindful in its wording to create opportunity for those for the nations to be really engaged in, in co-management. So where we're at right now, we've had six Indigenous Perspectives Working Group meetings. The biology content has been sent off to a third-party reviewer outside of the government to kind of make basically a peer review situation for them. And once the ministry gets that back, then we'll take the that document and make sure that it fits into the structure that we as an Indigenous Perspectives Working Group decided was was appropriate. And then uh, I guess I'm kind of jumping all around here. The the nations that are involved have also been kind of concurrently to all this, doing some engagement in their communities to engage with their uh, Thinhorn knowledge holders and making sure that uh, any any information that they want shared about their traditional knowledge of sheep or their objectives and what they want for sheep are going to be really clearly brought to us. And we can respectfully kind of braid all that into the into one cohesive document. So a lot of moving parts there. We've got local knowledge holders being engaged by the nations. We've got objective setting, uh, biology and management review happening. And yeah, hopefully it'll all be wrapped up by the fall is, is what I'm told. <laughs> yeah, huge undertaking, but um, definitely bringing a, a, a brand new perspective in that's never been really... Um, considered per se, certainly in, in any of the government managing management planning tools. So, um, you know, so hopefully that, the, you know, using the traditional knowledge, we can start to see some progress and, and, and do some management strategies that are really going to help uh, uh, thinhorn sheep for sure. So it's exciting. Uh, how did you get involved with that? So, you know, again, what's, how did you get involved with the thinhorn management plan and, and what was involved with that? Just curious. 
Yeah, so that was actually kind of an interesting coincidence how that came up. But my good friend and colleague, Hunter, who you guys, I believe, have had on the show, and he's a really strong voice for uh, for wildlife management in our province. So Hunter and I are good friends, and he actually was just aware of some of my master's work. Um, I think through Instagram, I had been sharing some trail camera photos and talking about doing this project with the Gwich'in. And Hunter reached out and said, hey, this is a really similar thing that we want to achieve in BC, would you be interested in like having a role in this, whether it's just kind of observing from a student's perspective, kind of just watching. And that was the role I signed up for <laughs> was it was student perspective, come uh, participate where I could. And it's kind of quickly turned into more of leading the actual writing of the Indigenous um, perspectives. So my job now is kind of almost to be a bit of a bridge scholar there and have, you know, kind of Bill's team working and then Bill and Hunter kind of guiding our Indigenous Perspectives working group and any content that gets derived from the group kind of comes in through me and I try and do my best to capture the essence of the conversations we've had as a group and as well as any content that comes in and actually doing the writing for that in the plan. So yeah, have a bit of a bigger role in that project than I was really anticipating, but I'm very, very grateful to be to be involved. It's been really cool and really um, gives me a lot of optimism for sure. Well, that's exciting, awesome. Okay, let's let's segue now completely off of um, thin horn management and sheep specific. Let's talk about um, forestry. Let's talk a little bit about that. So um, obviously, that's a hot topic in British Columbia. We all know about resource development and how it's impacting wildlife. Um, let's, let's talk about a little bit from now you, you've worked for forestry. Um, you've gone to school for forestry. You're an RPF. So, um, you've got that designation as well. You have a good understanding of it. Um, how you talked about opportunity in the province and, and you're enthusiastic about what we could do to, to better wildlife. So, you know, from your perspective and, and let's just go from the 50,000 foot view because we can't dig down into it now. But, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about to be progressive um, to manage resource extraction, specifically forestry, to benefit wildlife in the province? Easy question, I know. It's oh wow. Yeah. So easy question. Um, <laughs> not going to make anyone upset for sure. So that I think that there's so many really structural changes that could come to forest policy and how we conduct ourselves in forestry in the province. I had the pleasure of working over in Alberta where it's an area based management system as opposed to our volume based management tenure um, in BC. And that's come with allowing mills to invest heavily into their into their areas. So for example, in the Hinton Forest Management Area, it's over a million hectares, and that's where there's these incredible long-term monitoring programs for a very specific population of goats. We do breeding bird surveys and, and all kinds of stuff that, that the company takes on as its, its plan, um, because they know that every penny that they put into that investment is going to directly benefit them in the future. So I've seen some, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think if the solution was easy, we would have done it. <laughs> I, at least that's my hope and, and what I get from working with other fantastic RPFs in the pro, in the province. But I think that, that there's maybe some lessons to be learned in that more area-based tenure system. Uh, the other things that I'm seeing that I think are going to be really beneficial is more partnerships and more collaboration, transparency on what's actually going on. Um, the forest industry has been notorious for being terrible with educating people about how much actually goes into the development of a cut block. It's not just, we like this, it's great timber, let's cut it down. Um, there is a lot that goes on. And so I think in those frameworks with the collaborative planning and all the watershed assessments and wildlife surveys and, and everything that goes into pre-development, I think in those frameworks exist. And if we could strengthen those groups and make community a bigger part of objective setting on the landscape, that would go a long ways. We've also got this kind of unfortunate piece of legislation. I know I've heard you guys talk about this on the podcast before, but that thou shall manage all these non-timber values without unduly reducing the timber supply um, is kind of written right into the legislation. So large scale protections and leaving a lot of volume out of a cut block for wildlife is quite often prevented by in the actual legislation itself, unless you're in like a specific area, um, a management area. So I think that there could be a lot that we could shift away from kind of that maximum timber yield on the landscape to including m multiple values in a more meaningful way. It's 
definitely a myth that that doesn't get managed for at all. Multiple values do, and the job of a planning forester is extremely complex and difficult. But that being said, we are failing hugely across the province as far as what I'm actually seeing on the landscape. So people, I you can't say they're not trying, but I can certainly empathize with that. It sure looks like that on the ground to the public. And I think that forestry can't just take that lightly and go, yeah, well, we're trying and we did all this and here's the legislation. We're going above and beyond the legislative requirements and it, okay, great. And I appreciate that. And that means that people care, but what results are we actually seeing? They're not supporting that. It's not supporting that there's that much collaboration and partnership and that multiple values are being met. Um, Anyways, I'm going to start getting very passionate and ranty here, so I should let you guys go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that perception is reality thing, right? It's it's what you see. You take that snapshot and somebody posts it online and it's all of a sudden that's the way it is across across the world, right? And no, it's we see some areas that are great and others it's you, you know they're passionate about it and they're they're busting their asses, but they're they're, they're handcuffed, we'll say, right? Yeah, and there's a lot coming to the forest industry. So, I mean, this is also maybe hot, controversial, but I will say some of the some of the interesting things that I've seen the NDP government bring in to changes to the forest management system in BC have been really interesting. And one gauge of if change is actually happening is how upset is industry by this change? And I'm not trying to smash industry by any means. Like I've had a great career with West, with West Fraser and I really respect a lot of the foresters that work there. But you know that, something exciting is happening when the major players are nervous. And I'm not necessarily saying that's good. And we want to have, you know, all the mills shut down or anything. Like I don't advocate for that. Forestry is a huge part of our culture and what's important in the province. But I think that there's a lot of better ways of doing that. And I think that those changes are coming. Um, Maybe not fast enough, but there's definitely some really interesting stuff changing in the legislation. We've seen lots of changes to how Uh, the new forest harvest planning system. We've seen changes to the Forest Range Practices Act in the last few years. And and a lot of that is actually making real impact now on how licensees are able to operate. And there's a lot of pros and cons that come with that, but I think we need to try something. So. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think, you know, we, the proof's in the pudding, right? We look in the landscape, we we see these areas that, you know, are, are, being, you know, have, there's heavy resource extraction and, um, you know, people are talking that habitat is the biggest issue there, right? That there's all these other things, predation and, and disease and, uh, climate change, but a big part of it is, is what's happening on the landscape. So I think we can't deny the facts. And it, again, I don't think anyone ever wants to see the industry shut down or hurt, or, you know, we all have friends and family that work in the industry. So we obviously want a healthy forestry industry, but it's got to be about balance at some point. And, and again, we have to just look at the landscape and say, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? And in many cases, it's just getting worse. And, you know, there's things that need to be done. And I certainly don't have the answers. You, you'd be much better qualified to, to come up with all the solutions, but uh, we do have to start being more cognizant of how we're going to manage uh, the landscape. Totally. And and I think that because those frameworks kind of exist in, in that there are stakeholder engagements and certain requirements before you go in to actually do harvesting. But yeah, like that cumulative impacts piece has been missing in a, in a really meaningful way for so long in our province. And we're starting to see shifts towards that, which is really awesome. Um, you know, if I, I would encourage people who are really passionate about, um, you know, advocating for forestry, whether they want you know, it to be shut down entirely or not. Like I see a lot of people really passionate about this issue and I, and I would really encourage them to make sure that you strengthen your argument by actually understanding really how forestry works. Because if we have a lot of people who don't like what they're seeing on the ground, kind of waving their arms and yeah, I totally agree with that cause. Like there's a lot we could be doing better, but I think everyone having a deeper understanding of how forestry works and what actually goes into planning is only going to strengthen our conservation argument. I think that if you come in and you don't really know and you're just upset, that's not really helpful. I think that there's a lot more that we could be doing to improve by working together better. So that's kind of one thing that I would maybe encourage folks to do is like reach out for sure to your local mill or BCTS, or if you have someone in your life who's a forestry professional that you can kind of grill a little bit, get a better sense of how it works. Cause we have a lot of opportunity for improvement and you know, the public knowing more about what's going on is only really going to strengthen that conservation argument. I think. 
So one last one on this, and then we'll we'll move on. But do you think like the recent legislation changes that came out around forestry and the Forestry Act are are they a step in the right direction? Are are they actually meaningful changes, or is it just you know I've I've heard you know some people saying oh this is encouraging that they're doing something, and then I've heard other people saying yeah, but it's it's not it's again what's the end game? What's the outcome? What's the result? Is it going to actually help wildlife? And if it isn't helping wildlife, then why are we even doing it? Yeah, that's a really great question. So one other thing I wanted to clarify before I started talking about forestry. So right now I'm technically on a leave of absence from the association. So that means that my title is RPF bracket, non-practicing bracket. Um, So my opinions expressed are like more or less personal right now. Um, And that being said, because I'm non-practicing, I've also been a little bit less in detail with, with catching up on the legislation and what that actually looks like for the operations. I think it's encouraging to see any change. And I think that the motivation especially around like the the kind of concurrent wildlife policy changes at the same time are something to be hopeful about for sure. But that being said, you know, up until now, legislation has been very easily not worked around, but you can use it to your advantage as a forester and as a licensee. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's tough to say for sure. Cause again, I haven't been practicing since that new legislation has come out. So I don't know exactly how that's true been fully Im- impacting uh, day-to-day operations, but I, I remain hopeful. And <laughs> I hope I don't know if that's exactly the answer that you're looking for there. But yeah, I think the concurrent, you know, forestry legislations and habitat and wildlife stuff changing at the same time, the Wildlife Act is going to open some doors for sure, for, for good for wildlife. Well, I appreciate your can, being so candidate, candid and also, uh, you know, recognizing that you're, you know, you are an RPF. So it, you know, you, you, you have to walk a delicate line. So I appreciate <laughs> you being open about that and, and, uh, but also aware of what we need to do. And, and I think also, honestly, like a lot of these forestry companies, uh, do care about wildlife is, but obviously, you know, they're, they, they've got a mandate and they've got a, a mission that they have to do. They have to carry out the needs of the organization. And so, yeah, it's, you know, it's great to see that there is some movement in that direction and, and glad to hear that you're at least somewhat optimistic that you're saying, no, it's the same old. So at, at least you know, <laughs> fingers crossed that there's going to be some good come from it. Okay, cool. We've, we talked, we, yeah, we won't drill down any deeper there, but let's talk a little bit now about next steps for you. So um, you've got your study um, with, um, in the territories, where are you at timelines wise? Um, when will you have some outcomes from that? Um, and I guess, um, be great to hear you defend your thesis. That'd be fun to do. Um, so when does that happen? And then what are your next steps? Like what's your goal? Where do you see yourself five, 10, 20 years down the road in terms of, um, what you would like to see and do moving forward? Every grad student loves that question. So thank you. Um, (laughs) What's the plan after grad school? But yeah, I'll start with the for my immediate plan here. So over the summer, my goal is really just to to get through some of this data and start actually playing with it a bit. So start, I can start actually exploring some of the data that I've already tagged, I don't have to have it all tagged. I'm also working with the Gwich'in Renewable Resources Board to kind of get one of their summer students involved in some of the tagging and start getting some of that work to go through, um, to go through them. So anyways, tagging, exploring data, starting to play around with that, like actually comparing the ratios that I'm getting on the cameras to what our aerial surveys have shown. Um, I'll be up doing some field work up north as well in September and in July. Uh, so that's on the schedule as well. And yeah, over the winter, it's going to be a long winter of R coding and writing and just, yeah, trying to get uh, trying to get a really good handle on what our data is actually showing us. So that's my plan um, for the next year, I guess. And then hopefully have things wrapped up and I plan to defend in the fall of 2023. So I'm still a little ways out for sure on that, but really hoping to start see some prelim results that we can start sharing in community and, and get getting more guidance for where to take the analysis from there. So yeah, that's the next, that's grad school. Um, my vision for my career has always very much so been to, to stay in the forest industry and to work in a wildlife capacity somehow, like dream job title, senior habitat and wildlife biologist for, you know, Interfor, pick a company, you know, that's kind of what I really thought coming out of my undergrad I would do. And now that I'm in grad school and starting to work more closely with Wild Chief Foundation, Wild Chief Society, like getting more involved in kind of the NGO side of the world. And I see how much work is actually being done from these organizations. That makes me feel even more passionate 
that's what's always drawn me to a career in industry is like, you can make change now you have money now, like you have funding, you have opportunity, like you have a lot of opportunity to steer the bus and actually make work happen. And as a really solutions focused person, that's been a huge part of what I see as beneficial for wildlife and habitat, but also where my skill set and passion lies. So, you know, I'm, I, I, for so long, was like, I want to for sure be in the forest industry and working in, in a wildlife role somehow, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I, I think uh, keeping the doors open and all the connections and meeting people and going to events like Thin Horn Summit and, and just, yeah, meeting more folks. I'm like, there's a lot of opportunity out here to make really meaningful impact for wildlife. So I guess that's my bottom line over the next five to 10 years is make a meaningful impact for wildlife. <laughs> Well, it's it's very cool. It's you know, lots of times we talk to people and they're just downtrodden. They they've been through you know decades of of trying to do the right thing and they've just you know and almost a little dejected and, and it's easy to get caught up in that. And I think that happens in government, right? You talk to these people, you know, a, a guy like Bill Jacks who spent the last two three decades working on wildlife and and you know there's still issues out there and and not saying that bill's not an upbeat person he clearly is but lots of times you talk to people and they're kind of beat down so this enthusiasm is really <laughs> exciting and, and honestly sydney you are making changes like you know you're very involved in this thin horn management plan um you know you're doing some very significant um inputs into um you know wildlife management in the province of bc and beyond um so it's pretty cool and really exciting to see actually yeah thanks no it's felt kind of things in my career seem to have really catapulted and, and moved forward really fast since coming into grad school. And it's been really, really uh, almost overwhelming. And, you, and and I try not to be too naive about that optimism that I'm carrying right now and, and thinking like, oh, this is all, you know, really great and everything's totally fine here. It's it's more just like you, if you if you focus too much on the problems, like it's just so deflating and you can really get bogged down and, and then that to it paralyzes you. Like then you almost want to just jump ship abandoned wildlife career i'm too passionate about wildlife and it just hurts me emotionally every day to come into the office like i don't want to see myself there like we know that there's problems there's always going to be problems but like let's figure out a few things that we can do every day to make this better and that's kind of the lens that i'm, I'm hoping to kind of carry that motivation through my career um otherwise yeah like you said it's it's hard not to get feeling a bit deflated when you're working with something that everyone cares about so much and to see it suffering is yeah it's tough but I guess that's one of the uh, things that I, I find intriguing and exciting about, you know, being involved with the NGO work that we do through the, through the society and is that there's a lot of low hanging fruit. There's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of things we can just, well, if we change this, 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 and this, that's going to have some very significant immediate impact for wildlife. Um, but I think too, part of it is that, and I guess that's something that we can take away from uh, indigenous knowledge is that, you know, we sit there and, and Hunter reminds me of this all the time is that we think we can make one change and we're going to see an immediate result in a week or a month or a year. And it's like, no, no, you have to think in, in decades, centuries, you have to think long-term that, you know, these first, uh, first nation perspective is, is definitely the long game. And, and certainly that's something that we're not accustomed to. We're instant, instantly, you know, you order something from Amazon and it's showing up in three hours or the next day or something. Right. And, you know, we've gotten so accustomed to that and it doesn't work that way in the world of wildlife. Mm -hmm. and that's why I got started. It was for my daughter. And now I realize that it's for her kids and then their kids, right? Uh, we'd, we'd be all, bloody lucky to see any meaningful changes in in our lifetimes, right? But as, as long as we can set those wheels in motion, we're, we're on the right path. Yeah, totally agree with you guys on that. And that's, yeah, that's what kind of keeps me showing up and what keeps a lot of my colleagues showing up and I think that that's where people if you start trying to villainize certain players in the game or villainize you know industry or saying like this is a huge problem and it needs to stop right now and stuff and it's like yeah that's true but it's not realistic and if we can come to realistic solutions and if you have a solid understanding of how these kind of big machines work and by machines I mean like the industries and stuff if you can really understand how that works like there a whole apple tree of low hanging fruit starts to show up. And by really understanding these systems and these processes, the legislation, the key players, like you, you can start to find more fruit and you, and that, and that higher fruit in the tree actually becomes more reachable too. And that's kind of where I see that that collaboration, even with industry. Um, yeah. We operate on a system of continual improvement and I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. And um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can all just keep working towards that shared vision. Well said, uh, Sydney. I, I want to thank you for 
sitting down with us today to talk about the great work that you're doing. Um, we got to have you back on um, maybe towards the end of your study or, or maybe when you got some conclusions. I'd love to hear all about it and your findings and um, and talk more on this. And and certainly, I, I really enjoy hearing you know this the traditional knowledge and the um, the work you're doing with um, you know the shared management model and, and trying to understand that and what that might look like for British British Columbia because it's still a very early days for us and we're still trying to figure it out what that might look like so appreciate your perspective on all this and appreciate all the work you're doing and uh, expect great things from you in the coming years and ahead so. well thanks your guys' support means a lot it's uh, exciting to see people interested in our project and, and if folks on the show are interested in connecting I'll subtly plug my website here you guys can follow along I blog pretty regularly about updates on the project as well as you can see all my pictures from my experiences up in the northern Richardsons hear more about the work we're doing with community have some writing on the Thinhorn uh, stewardship framework coming up as well so uh, yeah stay in touch there you can find my email on my website as well if people want to reach out and have any questions so no, no hate email on the forestry. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, fantastic. And we'll grab all that data from you and share it in the show notes for sure. And absolutely. I, I, Steve and I can both attest that your, your website is fantastic. Even your blog on the Thinhorn Summit was brilliant. I'm like, you know, we, we need you writing for the society. Um, cause that's, that's excellent. Uh, yeah. what you, you posted there and your photos and everything. It's very interesting. Thanks. Well, any volunteer opportunities for the society, keep me in mind, even if it's stuff like that. I really want to be more involved with what, with the work you guys are doing. Really awesome stuff. And even had a chance to chop, chat with Josh last week about some of the camera work on the burn project and stuff. So hoping to, yeah, might, might not be able to get rid of me too easily now. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it and uh, appreciate you taking the time today. And I hope you have a wonderful long weekend. It sounds like you got a great plan ahead of you. So uh, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks guys so much. Take care. <laughs>